Our Father and our God, we are so thankful for your love. It is so great, beyond anything we could imagine, that you would send your only Son, that you love so much, our Lord and our Savior Jesus, to come and die for us, to take our place. We love you because you first loved us. And we come into your presence this morning with hearts filled with joy because you have given us joy. You have given us hope. You've given us life. We are so thankful for our young people who are away at their retreat this weekend. We ask that you would richly bless them, that you would stir in their hearts, that you would draw some of them to yourself for the very first time, and that others would lay their lives down before you as living sacrifices. Father, we pray now that as we open your word, you would open our hearts. Help us to see what you have for us in your word, to be transformed for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Congratulations on waking up on time this morning. And for making it, even though it's snowing a little bit, it seems like we're getting a little more sensitive to snow in Michigan, you know? We used to just pride ourselves we could go anywhere, doesn't matter how much it snows, but increasingly, well, it's snowing, we better not get outside. So thank you for, for coming and being here. In your bulletins this morning, um, there, there's a little note about our week preceding Easter. Resurrection Sunday, and I just want to bring to your attention one new piece of that week. We're going to celebrate the triumphal entry on Sunday, Good Friday, a a noon service as we usually do, and then Resurrection Sunday, a big service here with orchestra and choir and lots of celebration. But nestled into that week as well, on Tuesday evening, We're going to have a Seder dinner, a Passover Seder. For those of you who don't know what a Seder is, it's the traditional Jewish Passover meal. The Jewish Passover week begins on Wednesday. Their Passover lasts a whole week. It did at the time of Jesus as well, and it begins on Wednesday. So Tuesday night, we are going to have a special Seder dinner. And I really am hoping and praying that we will fill the fellowship hall that night. It's going to be a full meal. It's going to be a catered meal. So you do have to register in order to come. We're going to have a friend of mine who is a Jewish person who came to faith in Jesus Christ and now works in Brooklyn with Orthodox Jews sharing the Messiah with them. He's going to be here and he's going to unpack for us as we eat that meal together how so many elements in that traditional Jewish meal point us directly to Jesus. But you do have to register for it. You can register online. There's a table in the foyer with a little card that has, bro- has information about what the meal is like and how to register. But I would encourage you to, to, to uh, consider that and make sure you sign up for that. It's going to be a very special part of that Easter week or that week leading up to Resurrection Sunday. For those of us who have been around for a little while, we realize that nothing is perfect in our world, right? Nothing's perfect in our own lives. Even things that we want to make as good as we can 
they just remind us consistently how nothing is perfect here. When Inel and I moved back here from Uganda, we bought a house, and in the 17 years that we've been in that house, we have basically rebuilt it except for the studs. We have replaced the front door, and we have replaced the back door, and we have replaced the door that goes into the garage, and we have replaced the garage door, and we have replaced the roof, and we have replaced every appliance in the house. We have replaced every window in the house. I mean, it is like we have rebuilt it all. And then I look at those things that we've replaced, and I think, I wonder if before I die, I'm going to have to replace them again. It's, things just don't last. They aren't perfect. Now, if there's one thing that we might say, this is almost perfect. When, when a new baby is born, baby's skin is amazing, isn't it? I remember when our boys were born and their feet were so soft and so beautiful. There's not a scar. There's not, not a callus. I remember Inel saying, I almost don't want them to start walking because their feet are going to get calloused, they're going to stub their toes, and then when they become teenagers, we're just looking for the spray to deodorize their shoes because the feet's, you know. Nothing's perfect except Jesus. Jesus came and lived among us and is perfect was perfect, is perfect, always will be perfect. And as we look at Hebrews chapter 7, the last three verses this morning, we find that Jesus is the perfect high priest who has provided the perfect sacrifice and the only sacrifice that could possibly be perfect is himself. So our perfect high priest has provided a perfect sacrifice, which is himself. All the way through chapter 7, we've been seeing Jesus as our high priest. Remember chapter 1, he's presented as the son, whereas God has spoken to us in days gone by through the prophets and many people in these last days he has spoken to us through his son through whom he created the world and who is the heir of all things that's how it begins jesus is the son by the end of chapter one we see jesus is not only the son but he is the high king even the angels do his bidding. Then chapter 2, we began to, the, the Holy Spirit begins to help us understand that this Son who is eternal, who is a high king, and our high king has humbled himself. He came and lived among us, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. By the time we get to chapter, set, to chapter 7, we meet uh, this, this guy named Melchizedek, who is a type of the antitype. He's a shadow of the reality that is Jesus. And so Jesus has been presented as a priest, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. But when we get to the end of the chapter, Melchizedek has disappeared from the scene. His name is left out in verse 21, which quotes a verse in the Old Testament that has his name in it, but verse 21 now drops his name because he is not the center of attention. 
Jesus is who is our high priest. The theme through this chapter has been the high priesthood of Jesus, which is a forever high priesthood. That word has reappeared over and over and over again. And now we come to these last verses. After looking at verse 25 last week, where Jesus is still active on our behalf, he is saving us. He saved us, is saving us, and will save us. And he is helping us. He's interceding for us as our high priest. Now we come to verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those, those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus, the perfect high priest, has provided a perfect sacrifice himself. Verse 26 unpacks for us the perfection of this high priest. We have five adjectives that help us understand how perfect Jesus is. Melchizedek doesn't hold a candle to him. The Aaronic high priest cannot be compared. Jesus is unique. He's standalone. There is no one like him. Look at these five different adjectives of Jesus as our high priest. First of all, he is holy. Now, when we think of the word holy, the normal word used for holy, many of us know, means to be set apart, to be consecrated to God. So, the, the tavern, in the tabernacle, in the temple, there were implements, there were cups, and there were bowls, and there were candelabra that were consecrated to God, made holy for God, only for God's use. That's the normal prevalent use of the word holy. But this word holy is a different word for holy. It's really describing that Jesus is holy in his actions toward God. Everything Jesus has done completely satisfies what God wants him to do. He has left nothing undone. He's pure in his conduct towards God. Everything that the Father wanted Jesus to accomplish, Jesus has accomplished. That's what this word means. He has accomplished the will of God, so he has pleased God in every single way. Now, this isn't something that Jesus just attained. He was born this way, and he stayed this way through his incarnate life here on earth. In fact, when the angel was speaking to Mary, telling her that she was going to have a child as a virgin. The angel said this to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called, do you remember, holy, the Son of God. He'll be called holy. He is holy in his nature, in his character. He is completely pure. But as he lived here on earth, he remained completely pure. He accomplished everything his father wanted him to accomplish. 
So he's holy. Look at the next adjective. He's innocent. Whereas holy means that Jesus in every way in his conduct towards God is pure, innocent is focused on his conduct towards people. In his conduct towards people, he is in every way pure and righteous. He is guiltless. Think of it with, with Jesus as he interacted with people. Jesus was reviled. He never reviled in return. Jesus was mistreated over and over again. He never mistreated anyone else in return. Jesus was taken advantage of and abused. He never retaliated and took revenge. In his actions towards people, he was without guilt. He was innocent. Holy in his actions towards God, innocent in his actions toward people. And then the next word we're given is that he's unstained, completely unstained. Although he lived in a dirty and a stained world, sinful world, he was in no way polluted by it. You know, when, when we brush up against people, when we live next to people, when we when we are built, have friendships with people, we begin to become more and more like them. We often tell our children, birds of a feather flock together. You know, you, the people you hang out with, you're going to start acting like. Jesus hung out with us. He lived with us. He was in every way a human being with us and yet totally unstained. When you have white clothes, you know, you have to wash them separately from your dark clothes, especially from something like purple or red, right? I mean, when you make a mistake and you throw your white clothes in with those, they don't come out white. They come out, they, they're stained. Jesus, in all of his purity, living among us, is still unstained. He's not polluted by our sinfulness. He's like a beam of light shining into a dirty pond. The light isn't stained by the pond. It just reveals the filth of the pond. And then we're told that he is separated from sinners. So he's holy, he's innocent, he's unstained, he's separated from sinners among us, but not sinful like us. This doesn't mean he kept his distance. No, he came and lived among us. As John says, he tabernacled, he dwelt, he, he stayed among us, but very, very separated in his life. In no way did he become like we are in our sin. You know, when, when we grow up in a certain part of society, we learn the habits of that part of society. Or we grow up, grow up in a certain country. We learn the culture of that country. We grow up in a certain ethnic group. We learn the patterns of that ethnic group. And along with that, we learn the prejudices of that ethnic group. We learn the bias that comes. We may not even be aware of it, but we, we just absorb those things from the families we grew up in, the cities we grew up in, the countries we grow up in. We absorb those things. Not so with Jesus. He remained separated from sinners. He never ab adopted and absorbed 
those kinds of things. So, for instance, in his culture, a, a, a Pharisee or a scribe, one of those religious leaders, was known for praying in the public places so everyone would see, not so Jesus. Jesus, remember, went up into the mountain and prayed all alone at night. He prayed with his disciples, but it was not a show. For Jesus, this was sincere communication with his Father. Many times in that society, rabbis, just like sometimes religious leaders today, used their position to grow in fame and to grow in wealth. So you could have really popular rabbis who are now living pretty soft and cushy lives, like often happens with religious leaders today. Not so, Jesus. He was separated from sinners. He was dedicated to what God had called him to do, and he did not use what he could have used for his personal benefit. It was all for us. But he's not so separated in a sense that he doesn't understand us. He understands us in every way. You know, sometimes those of us who grow up in a developed country like the United States can have an awful hard time understanding what it's like for people who grow up in a developing country. You know, we have an ice storm last week, and a lot of us lost power, and we get pretty upset with the utility company. How on earth? You know, we live in the United States. We have a right to electricity. Brothers and sisters, how many of our brothers and sisters around the world do not have electricity? Or one of the big things we talk about now is having pure, clean drinking water is a human right. Brothers and sisters, the majority of the world does not have pure, clean drinking water. We, as people living in this country, are so privileged. We have a hard time comprehending, understanding people who live differently. Not so Jesus. Jesus is absolutely pure, absolutely holy, absolutely righteous, and yet completely understands our brokenness, our weakness, our sin. And then the final fifth adjective used of Jesus in verse 26 is that he is exalted above the heavens to the highest place. Ephesians tells us he is exalted above every dominion, every power, whether it's a power in heaven or a power on earth. He is above all of these powers. Why is that so, so important? If Jesus came and lived this perfect life and offered a, this perfect sacrifice but remains dead, Paul writes to the first Corinthians, he says, if Jesus has not been raised, our faith is in vain. Because the, the sting of death has won the victory, not Jesus. Jesus has won the victory. He rose from the grave. He is very alive, completely alive. So Jesus has not only risen from the grave, he is exalted. And so we have what we saw in verse 19, a better hope because he is exalted. He's enthroned at the right hand of the Father. In fact, to see that clearly, if, if you have your Bibles, if you turn back to Psalm 110, because this whole chapter has been built off of Psalm 110. 
I don't have the page number for you unless you're using one of those Bibles. It would be page 509, one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you. I don't know uh, about the other one, but right in the middle of your Bible, page, uh, Psalm 110. This is a psalm that talks about Melchizedek and Jesus being a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he is exalted as high priest. And that's how this psalm begins. Look at psalm, verse 1 of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, this is David speaking. David is saying, Yahweh says to my Lord, so there's a king that's going to be descended from David who is David's Lord. Jesus references that. He is the, in the line of David, and yet he is superior to David. The Lord says to my Lord, speaking about Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is exalted, and his enemies are his footstool. Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, the mighty scepter of Jesus. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He is exalted as high king and high priest. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. The people that follow Jesus will offer themselves to Jesus. That's us. Our responsibility then, he's not only high priest, but high king. We offer ourselves to him. We are his servants. We will do anything he says. We will go anywhere he sends us to go. And we do that in holy garments. Not because we're holy, but because, as we're going to see in the next verse, he offered a perfect sacrifice himself. He makes us holy, but now we offer ourselves to him, and we want to be like him. We want to imitate him. We want to be holy as he is holy. That's why Peter wrote, be ye holy as he is holy. He makes us holy because he washes our sins away, but then we want to live holy lives because he is our high king. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what this psalm is talking about. And he is our high priest who has taken our sins away. So verse 3 ends up, for the womb, from the womb of the morning to the dew, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This whole chapter in Hebrews has been built off of this, but it's both the high priesthood of Jesus and the high kingship of Jesus, which we saw in chapters 1 and chapter 2 of Hebrews. And verse 3 is really important. Your people will offer themselves to you. They, we need to offer ourselves to him in holy garments. This week, there was a NFL, well, he's a, he's a college graduate who's going to go into the NFL draft, and he's going to be drafted very highly, and he was asked by the newspapers, by some media, who are the NFL players that you most highly admire and want to be like? He named two of them, and it went viral. Some of you may have heard about it because the two players he named, great NFL players, but both of them in massive trouble with the law. When we make people our heroes, we're always in trouble because they're not perfect. 
they're always broken and failures like us. That was the problem with the high priests. They were weak and broken like us. But Jesus is perfect, and so we do need to seek to be like Him, to live like Him, to offer ourselves to Him as holy servants of His. No controls, no boundaries. Not saying to Jesus, I will do this, but you know I couldn't do that. No, we are His servants. He is our high priest and our high king, and we bow before Him. Now, it says at the beginning of verse 26, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Why is it fitting? Because he's like us in every way, and yet he is unstained. He's holy in his behavior towards God, and he's holy in his behavior towards men. And so he can represent men because he understands us, but he can stand in the presence of God the Father as our representative, as our high priest. He's experienced everything we have experienced, and yet he's experienced it without sin. And he is exalted. He has authority. He has power. He's not just someone we go to and we dump all of our problems on, but he can't change anything because he's got the same problems that we have. That was the problem of the other high priests. They were sinners too. They were broken too. They were going to die too. Not Jesus. He is uniquely different. He is exalted and he has complete authority. So when we come to him as our high priest, not only does he understand us in every way, but he is not like us. He remains holy and he has complete authority to represent us and to act on our behalf. Jesus is the perfect high priest. But verse 27 tells us that he's also the perfect provision. He's the perfect provision for us. Verse 27, let me just read it. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus makes one sacrifice that is completely sufficient. Being perfect, he offered himself as the sole, singular, sufficient sacrifice. The sole sacrifice, the singular sacrifice, and the sufficient sacrifice. This is a reference to what the priests would do on a daily basis, offering sacrifices for people when they had known sins. They would bring an animal to die in their place. But then once a year, Leviticus chapter 16, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies only once a year. Before he went in, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Then he had to offer sacrifices for the sins of the nation, for the people. He would carry the blood of those sacrifices into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it at the mercy seat before God, the presence of God Almighty. They had to offer their own sacrifices for their own sins, not Jesus, because he's perfect, as we saw in verse 26. So Jesus offers one singular sacrifice. There is no sacrifice like it. It is completely unique in all sacrifices ever offered because he is pure, he is holy. It is sufficient because it's not the blood of animals to take people's sins away or to cover them. It's the blood of a real person, the Son of Man. 
who is also the Son of God. Jesus offers a single sacrifice, and he only offers it once. Having died on the cross for us once, his sacrifice is sufficient, it's complete, it's perfect, and it reaches in scope to the ends of the earth. There is no sin that we can do that's beyond the bounds of Jesus' sacrifice other than rejecting him and his Spirit's work in our lives. There, there is nothing that we can say that, we, that has caused us to be so bad that that sacrifice of Jesus could not cover it. There is no person that is so far away from the presence of God that Jesus' blood cannot wash away their sins. It's a perfect sacrifice from a perfect person, and so it is sufficient for every single one of us, no matter how guilty you may feel, no matter what has occurred in your life, no matter what brokenness you have experienced, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient completely, a singular sacrifice. And it was once for all of us and for every sin. And so in the front of our church, we have a cross. And that cross is an empty cross. It's there to remind us of this immense sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. But it's empty because Jesus is not on the cross. Jesus has risen. Jesus is exalted. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And so it's not like in some traditions where they will say when you take communion, we're taking the body and the blood, the real body and blood of Jesus again because he's dying again for us. No, he died once and it was satisfactory forever. We don't have his body pictured on a cross because Jesus is not on the cross. He did it once, but he has risen. We have the cross there to remind us of that sacrifice, but Jesus is risen and he is exalted. Jesus is the perfect priest who offered a perfect provision, and that perfect provision lasts perpetually. It's perfect forever. Did you notice I have lots of peas? That's a Jimmy Smith thing, by the way. That's, that's not a Brent thing. But it worked today. A perfect priest with a perfect provision and perfect perpetually. Look at the last verse, verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What does it mean he has been made perfect forever? What it does not mean is that Jesus was less than perfect or Jesus was imperfect and somehow through his time on earth became perfect. That's not what it means because you go back to chapter 1 and it's clear he's the very son of God who created the whole world who has always been perfect. What it means that he was made perfect is he has proven perf to be perfect. He has been taken through so much in his incarnate form here on earth, but he pr has proven himself through all of this to be perfect. As the eternal God the Son, he became the e incarnate man, son of man. So God the Son becomes son of man. 
He lived perfectly. He died as a perfect sacrifice. He rose with perfect victory over death, which is the, the result of our sin. And he now reigns as a perfect high priest, high king. He has been proven in every way to be perfect. That's what that phrase means. Now, there are four contrasts in this little verse between him and those other priests, sort of summarizing everything in chapter 7. It says, they were appointed by the law, but he is appointed by an oath. That's going back to verse 21 where it's quoted, the Lord has sworn, that's the oath, and he won't change his mind that you are a priest forever. The Aaronic priests were by the law. Moses, bring Aaron and his family. They will be my priests. It's a law. But Jesus, God the Father says, I am making an oath because this is going to last forever. Total different kind of priesthood. So much higher, so much better. Versus those other men who were priests, this is a son. He now appoints that last phrase of verse 28, a son, his son. So versus men, we now have the eternal son as our high priest. He says those priests, he refers to them as those priests who were appointed in weakness. That word weakness addresses the sickness of their lives, the fact that they all died, the fact that they all fell short of God's standard. That is in contrast to the perfection that he is proven to be perfect. And they were all temporary, but he is forever. This is a perpetual priesthood of perfection. Perfect priest who offers himself as the perfect provision for our sins. And his perfection is perpetual. It never comes to an end. Everything that God intended Jesus to accomplish, he accomplished. He is our perfect high priest. So Jesus is the perfect high priest who's provided a perfect sacrifice, and that sacrifice is himself. We are completely dependent on him. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to know when we get to the end of chapter 7. We have no representation before the holy ancient of days who is seated upon his throne in heaven apart from Jesus Christ, only him. But what he does is more than sufficient for everything in each of our lives and for every single person in the world who will put their faith in him. But at the same time, he's not only high priest, he is high king. That's the context of Psalm 110. He has been given a scepter by which he rules and we as his people offer ourselves to him. So we don't come to our high priest and say, Jesus, I'm so thankful you died for me. I'm so thankful you're representing me before the Father in heaven. And now we just go on and do life as however we want to do it. That is not even an option. Children of God who have been saved by this perfect provision of Jesus himself must bow before him also as our perfect high king. So when we come to him and we are so thankful that he represents us before the Father and that he is still saving us and that he is still helping us, we also bow before him as our high king. 
because he is our high priest, because he's once offered a once-for-all perfect sacrifice for our sins. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to add anything. There are no add-ons. There's nothing we add to except our lives that are offered to him in worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, so grateful that you have done it all for us, but in response, we offer ourselves to you. We want to be holy servants, completely yours in every way, given to you, belonging to you, and walking in holiness. We want to learn to imitate you. We want to become more like you. Thank you for being our perfect priest, offering a perfect provision that is perpetual. We are safe, we are secure, and we belong to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.